Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 239. We'll begin the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3, and follow with some thoughts about press-ganging the other. As I said in episode 231 when I began 1 Chronicles, like Samuel and Kings, the division of Chronicles into two books is the product of anonymous editorial forces. That is, it appears in this way in the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Tanakh from the 3rd to 2nd century BCE. And it kind of stuck. First Chronicles ended with the death of David and the coronation of Shlomo, and for the next nine chapters of Second Chronicles, it's going to be wall-to-wall Shlomo, because, quote, Adonai, his God, was with him and made him very great. Your Highness has arrived! Chapter 1 begins with an assembly of VIPs in Giv'on, where, quote, There the tent of God's meeting was that Moses, servant of God, had made in the wilderness. But the ark of God David had brought up from Kiryat Yarim, as David had readied for it, for he had pitched a tent in Jerusalem. At the site, there is also an altar where Shlomo proceeds to near offer what amounts to about a thousand near offerings. And that night, God appears to Shlomo, and like the genie in the live-action Disney remake of Aladdin, offers Shlomo anything he asks for. Step one, rub the lamp. Step two, say what you want. Step three, there is no step three. See, it's that easy. Shlomo is ready. Quote, now give me wisdom and knowledge that, is, that I may lead this people, for who can judge this great people? God is pleased with this wish and grants it as well as a bonus. Quote, the wisdom and knowledge are given to you and wealth and possessions and honor I will give you, the like of which no kings before you had nor after you will have. And well, when God promises, God delivers. Shlomo amasses fabulous wealth, more than Croesus, which Shlomo decides will be dedicated to building God a house. Chapters 2 and 3 will outline how Shlomo intends to achieve that goal. First, the laborers, 70,000 porters, 80,000 quarriers, 12,000 horsemen, and 3,600 project managers. Then, sourcing the raw materials, Shlomo reestablishes diplomatic relations with Hiram, king of Tyre, and asks, quote, send me a skilled man to work in gold and in silver, and in crimson and in purple and in indigo, and who knows how to engrave with the skilled men who are with me in Judah and in Jerusalem, whom my father David readied. And send me cedar wood, cypress, and algum wood from Lebanon. For I know that your servants know how to cut down the Lebanon trees. And look, my servants shall be with your servants to ready for me wood in abundance. For the house that I am about to build shall be wondrously great. Shlomo, of course, will pay top dollar for all of this. Hiram agrees, and the work begins, but not before, quote, Shlomo made count of all the sojourning men who were in the land of Israel after the count that David his father had made, and they came to 153,600, and he made of them 70,000 porters and 80,000 quarriers in the hill country and 3,600 directing the people's work. In other words, Shlomo identifies all the non-Jewish residents in his kingdom and... Get to work! Go to work! Go to Chapter 3 identifies the work site, quote, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where he had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had readied at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And the date, quote, in the second month on the second day in the fourth year of his kingship. 
The chapter continues to outline the dimensions of the main structure and courtyard, the inner chambers, the holy and holy of holies, as well as the commanding columns, 35 cubits high, named Boaz and Yachin, that flank the grand entrance, each with a tzefet, or crown, and a hundred pomegranates set in chainwork. That's a beautiful building. seems to be amping up now. So let's go to our new and regular segment. You can go your own way. The chronicler plays fast and loose with the matter of who built the temple. First, flying in the face of the accounts in the book of Joshua, whereby the land was ethnically cleansed of its non-Jewish inhabitants, there are suddenly resident aliens living in the kingdom in numbers significant enough to be press-ganged into building the temple. Second, according to 1 Kings, one of the primary grievances the people had with the monarchy was how they were forced to build the temple. I guess we're not all that mad about it here because it's all been retconned, a thing writers of a series will do when they've either run out of ideas or forgot about continuity or just because. I talked a bit more about retconning in episode 173. So, to be fair... Well, to be fair... 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 The chronicler stipulates that the forced laborers enlisted after the census are indeed resident aliens, gerim. This is not present in the parallel accounts in 1 Kings, and the census tallies the number, and literally every single one is press-ganged and put to work in some fashion. So who are these sojourning men, as the text tells us? Later on in chapter 8, we get a better explanation. Quote, All the people left of the Hittite and the Amorite and the Prezite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, who were not of Israel, of their sons who were left after them in the land whom the Israelites had not wholly destroyed, Solomon subjected them to forced labor till this day. If you look again at that list of peoples, you'll find a notable absence, the Canaanites. So who are we talking about here? The few surviving people of the hills of Judea and Samaria, where the tribes of Israel first settled during the invasion under Yehoshua? Did those people become slaves to the king? From the books of Joshua and Judges, we learn that most of the Canaanite cities in the coastal plain were never brought to heel by the tribes during the time of Yehoshua and the Judges, and even during the monarchy of King Shaul, he struggled to conquer them. You can do it! You can do it all night long! Well, David did better. He conquered Beersheba and the surrounding valleys from the Amalekites and the coastal plain from the Canaanites and the Philistines. So this might account for the high number of Gerim under Shlomo's control and with the shared border with Hiram, king of Tyre, perhaps even more Gerim who were under the rule of Hiram in the mountains of Lebanon found themselves working for Shlomo in the rock quarries or the forests. Now, how do we understand this arrangement? Was it slavery, indentured servitude? Medieval commentators Maimonides and Nachmanides lean hard on the latter. Maimonides in chapter 6 of the Laws of Kings and Wars in the Mishnah Torah states, quote, War is not conducted against anyone in the world until they are first offered peace and refuse it. Whether this is a discretionary war or a war of mitzvah, as it says, when you come close to the city to fight with it, you shall call to it to make peace. 
if they make peace and accept the seven commandments incumbent upon the sons of Noah, that is, Gentiles, none of them are killed, but they must pay us tribute, as it says, quote, and they shall be for you a tributary, and they shall serve you. If they propose to accept upon themselves the payment of the tribute, but not servitude to us, or they accept servitude, but not the tribute, we ignore their proposal until they accept both. The discussion that follows, especially when it involves what happens if peace is not reached immediately, goes off the rails rather quickly and it gets pretty genocidal. So, assuming the best of intentions here, it seems that David bound these Gerim into a treaty that offered them safety and security in exchange for the promise of future work, which Shlomo then invokes when it's time to collect the necessary materials for building not only the temple, but his palace as well. Someday. And that day may never come, I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Employment circumstances notwithstanding, there's something else interesting about this building project. As I mentioned before, it involved Hiram, the king of Tyre, or Tzor. Tzor is a Canaanite Phoenician city, arguably the most important port on the Mediterranean coast in Levant. And it was established both on land and on an island about a kilometer off the coast. And it seems that Tzor on the coast was part of David's kingdom, as it is mentioned as part of the census that got David into serious trouble with God for taking. You're in big trouble, buster. The Tyrians were famous for their skills as sailors and shipbuilders. And it seems that Hiram, and David had particularly strong diplomatic ties, as well as a common foe, the Arameans. According to First Kings, Shlomo and Hiram dispatched their respective fleets in naval adventures. Quote, for the king had a Tarshish fleet on the sea, along with Hiram's fleet. Once every three years, the Tarshish fleet came in, bearing gold and silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Hiram also sends a craftsman and project manager to assist Shlomo in building the temple, a man also named Hiram, who the king says is, quote, a skilled man. Hiram, my master craftsman, the son of a woman of the Danite daughters, and his father is a Tyrian man, knowing how to work in gold and in silver, in bronze, in iron, in stone, and in wood, in crimson, in indigo, in fine linen, and in purple, to engrave and to do every plan that will be given him with your skilled men of my master David, your father. Did you catch that? The man entrusted by the king of Tzor to represent his nation and manage the grand project of temple construction is a child of intermarriage between a Jewish woman and a Phoenician Canaanite man. One might almost imagine that Hiram's mother came from the Tzor on the coast and his father from the island. And this same Hiram is now charged with getting things moving and building God a home on earth on the site of Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor atop a mountain just north of the city of David. And the house he's going to build, the ostensibly most Jewish of houses on the planet, will actually be of Tyrian design, a sacred footprint we will see again and again in temples across the ancient Near East. One of the earlier forms of Canaanite Phoenician temples can be found at Megiddo. It dates to around 3000 BCE and consists of a simple rectangular large room containing the idol. Three other temples at Megiddo date from around 1900 BCE with the same plan, all place the door on the long side of the rectangle. 
About four centuries later, a porch is added to the design. A further refinement occurs at Beit Sha'an with the addition of a small room or a cubicle at the rear raised above the room floor. This space contains the idol. This, arguably, is the prototype for the Holy of Holies in Shlomo's temple. Shlomo's temple, built, as I said earlier, in the Tyrian, Phoenician, Canaanite mode, can also be seen in the ruin of a temple at Tel Tainat in Syria, where in 1936 and 1937, archaeologists uncovered a porch, a holy place, and a holy of holies. The same plan form is seen in Greek temples without surrounding colonnades, indicating a Syrian influence. So despite what for many Jews is an obsession with maintaining cultural integrity at all costs, using the word assimilated as a smear, decrying intermarriage. I am shocked at your behavior. We find again and again that our ancient ancestors, going all the way back to Moshe, even to the patriarchs themselves, were not as preoccupied with policing that boundary. This is not to say that there weren't rules and norms about marriage practices. There were. But for every Ezra, there was a Ruth. And for every symbol of Jewish purity, say the menorah, we have a counter symbol of Jewish hybridity and elasticity, namely the building which housed the menorah, planned by an intercultural Tyrian who set the standard, or some would say perfected the design for sacred spaces, not only for Jews, but for Phoenicians and eventually the Greeks. We like to borrow designs. We also like to borrow languages and ideas. It's what makes us robust and hardy. And this strategy helped us navigate life as a minority in a world of cultures not our own. But for now, in this final book of the Tanakh, it's time for the workers to get to work. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 240, when we continue in Second Chronicles with chapters 4 through 7.